0: Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God.
1: All right, before we jump into that text, uh, let me pray for us. Father, would you give us open hearts to what, what this text might have for us? Our spirit, would you open our eyes to what this, this text might want to show us? And, and give us open ears that we might hear your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, C.S. Lewis might have been the worst but most honest convert in history. When he became a Christian, there were no bursts of light, no dramatic experiences. Instead, he describes his conversion like this. You must picture me alone in that room at Magdalene. That's the college he taught at. Night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted God was God and and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. Dejected. reluctance. Reluctant. The steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. To take up life with God, to be converted, is surrender. A surrender to someone outside of yourself. Have you experienced God like that? The steady, unrelenting approach of him whom you desire not to meet. I did not feel that when I first became a Christian, but I've I felt it more in the last couple of years. I'm beginning to understand Lewis's experience, and the best way to describe my experience of God calling me to surrender is, is these words from Martin Luther, the three conversions he says happens in the Christian life. Luther says, there are three conversions necessary, the conversion of the heart, the mind's In the purse. I remember the conversion of my heart, my belief that Jesus is the Son of God. I remember the conversion of my mind, the high school years or last year of high school, reading theology books instead of doing my homework like I was supposed to. But the purse, or in our day, the wallet. I'm in the midst of that conversion right now. And so I relate to C.S. Lewis's words I feel the unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desire not to meet, at least when it comes to this. And I want to talk to you about that this morning the conversion, the surrender of the purse or the wallet. And maybe you hear that and immediately start thinking, okay pastor talking about money. And I hear that and I understand. And I've seen pastors speak about money in spiritually harmful ways. And maybe that's in your history or in your story. At the same time, as God has sought the surrender of of my wallet, while it has been a surrender, it's been a spiritually rich and powerful experience. That while I initially might have resisted God, the surrender of my wallet... My generosity is freeing. And I want you to have that experience, to begin that journey, to be set free into a generous life. And so I hope you'll allow me some permission to wade into these waters, to talk about money, and generosity, the conversion of our wallets through the life of. Hezekiah. And if you're not ready for that, I understand. But in Isaiah 39, Hezekiah has not surrendered his wealth, his treasury, his version of his own wallets to God. And there's a cost to that kind of life. And so let's navigate our, our way through this text with three ideas. First, the cost of not surrendering our wallets. Second, a vision of the generous life. And third, the journey to a generous life. So first, the cost of not surrendering our wallet. Now, Isaiah 39 is the story of Hezekiah, which means it's the same king as last week. King Hezekiah is visited by envoys of Babylon with letters, gifts. They are schmoozing Hezekiah. Why? I will take a look at this map. The bottom uh, Left corner of the map is Judah. That's where Hezekiah lives. Straight to the right, you'll see there, that's Babylon. That's where the envoys have come from. And just directly above Babylon is in the purple, is Assyria. We talked about them last week. Assyria is the, the world power of this day. They're asserting their dominance. But Babylon's up and coming. And they want to take the, the title of the world power of the day away from Assyria. So the Babylonians are visiting Hezekiah so that he will join them against Assyria. Let's form an alliance, Hezekiah. Let's take on Assyria together. Now this is the fourth week in a row where a king of Judah is contemplating a military alliance with a foreign power. And if you've been here for the other three weeks, let me pose a question to you. What is God's answer that he has given each of the three weeks, should the king of Judah form an alliance with a foreign military power? So let's see what Hezekiah does. Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. He showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not Show them. Hezekiah, now enamored by the attention of the powerful Babylonians, shows them everything. Look at my wealth. Now, this illustration may not work, but is was anybody a fan of the, the show uh, Cribs on MTV? <laughs> About four people. Okay, we'll move on. Just the show was people would like celebrities, wealthy people would show their entire house. Like, look at my thousand pairs of shoes. Isn't this amazing? And you're supposed to be like, I wish I had a thousand pairs of shoes. Anyway, that's what Hezekiah is doing. Hey, Assyria or Babylon, I've got a lot of power, I've got a lot of wealth that is available to you. Let's form this alliance. Hezekiah is living by trust in his wealth. And it will cost him. And when we live by trust in our own wealth, it costs us. And I want to name two of those costs for us this morning. The first is when we fail to surrender our wallet, we miss the life of faith. So when Hezekiah shows the Babylonians all the wealth of his kingdom, the question should be whose wealth is that? Verse 5, Hezekiah, or Isaiah, when he speaks to Hezekiah, he'll make it clear. Uh, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, and that which your fathers have stored up till this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Uh, Who owns the wealth? The Lord. And because he would like it to go to Babylon, it's in a few years going to go to Babylon. And that raises a lot of questions. We don't have time for those questions. Because I just want us to reflect on, on this question. Uh, who owns this? Who owns what's in yours? The Bible has only one clear and repeated answer to that question. Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. Deuteronomy ten fourteen To the Lord your God belongs the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. And i not going to take up the rest of my uh, 30 plus minutes just reading scriptures like that. I'll, I'll stop. God owns it all. We are stewards, not owners. Uh, when I was in high school, my junior year prom dates, said that she might have, uh, have access for us to take a friend's Rolls-Royce to prom. And that sounded awesome. Me rolling up, driving a Rolls-Royce as a junior in high school to prom. Uh, my parents had the complete opposite reaction. <laughs> Zero chance that's even a, a possibility, that our 16-year-old son is going to be entrusted with a Rolls-Royce. So it didn't happen. But I could tell you this, had it, had it happened... I would have been under no illusion that I was the owner of that car. That was not my Rolls Royce. And can I tell you, with with your life, with your resources, with your wallet, you have been given something that's far greater than a Rolls Royce to drive one night to prom. And when we see all that we have is a gift from God, and we get to steward that into His world, and we are not owners, we are freed into a different type of life. And Jesus speaks to this. Jesus has a teaching that for a long time I thought to be completely unhelpful. His teaching on anxiety. This is Jesus' teaching on anxiety. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Uh, Thanks, Jesus. That's helpful. Uh, But but in the last couple of years I've seen Jesus is actually connecting anxiety with, with wealth and greed. Here's the full teaching. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. So what is the cure for our anxiety? Well, Jesus says two things. First, go out into nature and look at the world. It's all God's. Everything creeping around and crawling around and flying around. They will be fed today. And you will have nothing to do with it. Because that's God's business. And if he's watching over those things, the birds, he's watching over you. Because you're of more value than he is. Now that sounds nice. Maybe that helps a little bit. But Jesus is saying a second thing here. And it's in the verse immediately preceding Matthew 6.25. The reason why anxiety is arising in the first place. And here's that teaching. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other. Or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you. Do not be anxious about your life. Why are we anxious, according to Jesus? Because money is a terrible God. And you cannot serve money and God. To our culture, which is both unfathomably wealthy and also recording the highest anxiety rates in history, Jesus would say to us, can I set you free into the generous life of faith? The first time I I ever felt God seeking my surrender of my wallet in a painful way was while I was in seminary. Uh, We had saved for for a few years to go to seminary. And while I was in seminary, I worked two jobs at the same time. But there was no chance that was going to cover our costs given I needed to be a full-time student. And so I thought, I can't give right now. But I felt God saying, not true. You need to tithe out of your income. Tithe being 10%. And I made many excuses. Well, look at all my time I'm giving to study to be a pastor. I'm making way less than I should in in one of my jobs where I'm serving the church. I had no vision. Tim, look at the birds of the air. And God kept inviting me into the life of faith and trusting him to provide, but I couldn't. Our giving was sporadic, it was inconsistent, and I look back now and, and respond, I missed the life of faith. What could have happened? Because I've heard some stories over the last few weeks who people who leaned into the life of faith in that moment and what God did, and I, I missed it. And to fail to surrender our wallets is to miss the life of faith. But there's a second cost. When we fail to surrender our wallet, the next generation pays. And so Hezekiah hears that all the wealth he has trusted in will be carried off to Babylon in a future day. And that's terrible news. That suggests war. That suggests devastation. Jerusalem being overrun with foreign invaders. And that's exactly what will happen. About 140 years from this moment, Babylon will invade Jerusalem, take all of its wealth, and send its people into exile. So how did Hezekiah respond to this news? Lament. Please, God, no. Do something else. Uh, No, he says this, verse 8. Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought, There will be peace and security in my days. It's not great. Total indifference to the next generation. At least I'll be fine. And they will pay for it. I could tell you in our own day who is not indifferent to the next generation. It's our advertising industry, which intentionally invests $5 billion into their campaigns to reach our students and children. Because they know if they can commit a, teen, a teenager to a product. They'll have a a customer for life. $5 billion. Is the American church as committed to our next generation? Is our church? Are you? It's why one of our central visions of the Gather initiative is creating a new residency program. So what does that look like? Well, each year we hope to take up to 12 students, some of whom desire to go into ministry, some of whom desire to go into the marketplace and invest intentionally in them. We want to hire a staff member to lead it. We want to connect with business uh, Christian business owners who will disciple those students, give them a job, teach them what it means to be a Christian and the vocation they desire to pursue. We want to intentionally disciple those students to, to process the way of Jesus with them in their early 20s so that they're set on a path for life. If we do everything we would hope to do, that could be up to a $200,000 a year new line item in our budget. Those resources are absolutely in this congregation, but it will c- require our, final, our financial generosity. For us to say, I don't just want peace and security in my life and my time, I want to give away my life to the next generation. It's easy to be indifferent to the next generation. You may not live to see see those rewards. And we like to give to tangible things we can see. But I want you to know, right now, you are witnessing the tangible results of someone's outlandish, radical generosity into the next generation. Whenever I run along... Prairie Doonland Trail, there's always a significant moment for me. Uh, On the trail, there is a a very large Generac generator. Now that sounds weird. Am I really into generators? What makes that a specific moment? Well, I have no idea how to work a generator. I've never owned one. Uh, But here's why that moment is significant for me. Uh, The man who designed that generator, his name is Bob Kern. And he made a lot of money because he made a greater and cheaper generator that more customers could have access to. I mean, made like billions of dollars. And one of the things he did with that money was give away millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars, to seminary students so that they could get out of seminary debt free. And I am one of those students. He invested tens of thousands of dollars into my life, and I've never met him, and you have never met him, but if you've appreciated anything about my time here, you are living off a man who was radically generous into my life, though he would never see any of the results. There are costs to failing to surrender our wallets. We miss the life of faith, and the next generation pays. So, what is the generous life? How does the Bible speak to a vision of a generous life? Well, that's where I want to go next. Uh, the question must inevitably ask, asked, as it was asked of me in the lobby last week. So, how much should I give away? And we're asking you to pray through that question, to... Consider what you might give to our gather initiative. And I want to answer that question in two ways this morning. First, if God is the owner and I am a steward, I give away what the owner would want me to give away. John Wesley understood this, and so he invited us to consider four questions before we make a purchase. Taking into account, I'm spending not my money, but the Father's. Here are those four questions. In spending this money, am I acting as if I owned it, or am I acting as the Lord's trustee? What scripture passage requires me to spend this money in this way? Question three Can I offer up this purchase as a sacrifice to the Lord? Question four Will God reward me for this expenditure at the resurrection of the just? I recognize those questions are intense. But this is not a cold taskmaster looking over our shoulder with these questions. He's our Father who wants to steward our resources the way He would use those resources in kindness, in open-heartedness, and generosity. These questions might initially sound suffocating, but in the presence of our Father, they will set you free. Uh, and to illustrate that, I want to I watch a story of people who embody this vision of generosity. And I suspect you will find their story not suffocating, but they'll sound like people who are free. So let's take a look.
0: I'm Sally Fogelsong and this is my husband John. We have two children, our son Graham and our daughter Grace and we've been attending Liberty Bible Church for about 25 years now. We got connected right away uh, which for us was really important. We were newlyweds and thought we knew everything but shortly after that realized that we didn't know very much about each other or life in general and so it was really helpful to be part of a small group where we could grow alongside other young couples. Over time, the relationships and the community that has been built has been so supportive over the years. Um, So that is what I find is one of the most valuable things is the relationships that I find at Liberty, Uh, the community and the support. um, The people that we've um, interacted with um, have been so supportive through different things. We've gone through the lows together and the highs together. We've cried together and we've laughed together.
2: The amount of people who have invested in us and then the opportunities that we have had to turn around and invest in others, just what an opportunity uh, to know Christ because uh, Christ used other people to invest in us. I think we choose to give One, out of obedience, uh, two, out of our heart.
0: We have an understanding of our money is not our own, that we have been given um, this money from the Lord. We are stewards of this, and we know and believe that the Bible tells us that it's important to support the local church.
2: What I see happening at Liberty uh, focusing on people's salvation and an opportunity not to follow some rules, not an opportunity to to do this thing for God, but an invitation to relationship with our Creator. That's really uh, not only with the Gather Initiative but really in the last year I have felt challenged with is that this is an invitation to relationship.
0: I'm really excited to to be a part of that, to hear about some of the exciting things that are in the future for Liberty Bible Church. I feel like it's challenging me to be more generous um, financially, uh, with my time, and with my heart. Just opening up to people that maybe I haven't seen or noticed around me before, but to just be more assertive in making sure that this is a place where all people feel welcome and loved by Jesus.
2: And gathering those not yet gathered, right? This isn't a building project. This isn't a building project for us. This is gathering those not yet gathered, and, and I really believe that it was presented that way, that, that yeah, we're gonna do some stuff to our buildings really that need to be done, uh, but we're also looking at special needs. We're looking at launching a new church in the south side of Chicago. That just some, some neat things that are beyond just our buildings.
0: And I think that if we spend time in prayer and we ask the Lord to show us, Lord, how do you want me to be involved? Um, Whether it's financially or whether it's time or whether it's prayer, all those different aspects are so important. So I think that going to the Lord and just asking him, God, what would you have me do? How would you have me be part of this? And then go for it.
1: I hope you hear in their voices uh, freedom. The generous life is the free life. Uh, But I still haven't answered the question. So how much should I give away? Uh, And so the second thing I want to say is, if God, God is the owner, then I seek his vision of how much I should give away. And while the New Testament does not provide specifics, the Old Testament does. It's very clear. And generosity in the Old Testament uh, includes these elements. First, in the Old Testament, there was a teaching of the tithe. A tithe was 10% of one's income, their crops, their possessions, that went to the house of God. And Jesus affirms that idea in Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, Jesus is critiquing the Pharisees in the religious establishment, who are so committed to obeying God, they even tithe out of the spices in their kitchen. Now I want to be clear. We're not going to ask you to do that. Keep your cinnamon in your cabinet. But Jesus doesn't condemn them for that practice. Here's what he says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So you need to be more just and merciful and keep tithing. Secondly, in the Old Testament, there was an expectation of giving to the materially poor. We are to set aside money to assist the poor. And Jesus affirms that practice in Matthew 6, assumes his disciples will give alms to the poor. third, in the Old Testament, there were various feasts and celebrations that God's God's people were to give to. And again, through the Gospels, Jesus encourages Christians, throw feasts and invite all kinds of people into your lives and homes. And then fourth, the Old Testament had special offerings and seasons of generosity, generosity, specifically geared toward God's meeting place of the tabernacle or temple. Ezra and Nehemiah and Exodus tell those stories. And again, we see the same practices in the New Testament. When the Ephesus church rents a hall where they can meet, or when people are selling their possessions to give to the needs of the church. So how much do we give away? Well, the Old Testament vision was this. Ten percent of the house of God, I believe, you read the New Testament, that's the church. We are meeting place of the Spirit of God now. So unless God no longer expects to give to his house, 10% feels like the right number. On top of that, we should set aside money for the poor and the vulnerable, materially poor. On top of that, we should set aside money for hospitality. And on top of that, we should set aside money for the various works of the church, missions, buildings, special initiatives. So I don't know what your percentage should be But God's vision in the Old Testament is actually far beyond 10%. A generous life gives to the things God loves. The church, the poor, hospitality, unique moments in the mission of the church to move us forward into the world. That most estimates of what the Old Testament requirement of giving was between 25 and 35% of one's income. And the more you made, that number would rise increasingly. And I realize what I just said is radical in our culture because that is very different than what Christians in the United States presently practice. The present practice of generosity in the United States, the wealthiest culture in history among U.S. Christians, is the average churchgoer in America gives about $17 a week, $900 a year. The average Christian gives away about 2.5% of our income. And the more money we make as Christians, the smaller percentage of income we give away. That once Christians start making more than $75,000 a year, they start giving away a smaller percentage of their income. The U.S. Christians, we make $5.2 trillion annually. That's the half of the income of all the Christians in the world. That means if Christians in the U.S. alone started tithing just 10%, which I'm making the case is actually far below the biblical vision, we just started tithing, the mission of God in the world would instantly have an additional $390 billion of resources. We do not have a resource problem. We have lost the vision of the generous life. And maybe you hear all this and think this is just too overwhelming. When I look at my finances, my debt, my lifestyle, there's no chance I can do this. I feel like you just put a huge burden on to me. And I understand, as someone who lost the vision of gener- the generous life, um, what I'm grateful for is, is God is not interested in shaming us. I mean, even Jesus teaching on God and money. don't be anxious. Look at the birds. It's kindness, it's merciful. So remember Jesus' teaching, do not be anxious about your life. There's a better way to live, a freer way to live. So I want to end there, the journey towards a generous life. Now one of the most confusing things about the book of Isaiah is that Isaiah tells the story of Hezekiah out of order. Then maybe you've been sitting there thinking, wait, last week Hezekiah had this incredible trust of God and faith. But now he failed, after he had such a dramatic trust in God. But that's most likely not what happened. Isaiah 39 is a flashback to an early, earlier moment in Hezekiah's life. And theologians have wondered why. Why does Hezekiah do that? And that would be a fun sermon on its own, but i got time to give you two quick answers. Uh, the first is Isaiah 39 marks the end of the first section of the book of Isaiah. Beginning in chapter 40, Isaiah is going to begin speaking to the people of Judah who will experience what happens in Isaiah 39, the people taken to Babylon in exile. Isaiah 40 through 36 is addressed to those people. So it makes sense that the last chapter before that address is why everyone's in exile to begin with. And why are they in exile? Because Hezekiah didn't trust the Lord with his wealth. The second reason I think Isaiah tells the story out of order is to ask us a question. I mean, last week we heard of Hezekiah's faith late in his life. He's up against the king of Assyria. He has no chance. And he trusts God. And that's the point. We read the powerful deliverance of Hezekiah. And now we read him not trusting in God. And we read his failure. And it's just confusing. Why would you do it this way? Hezekiah, you... You could have done it the right way from the beginning. Why would you do it this way? And that begins the question we can begin to ask ourselves. Why am I doing it this way? Why wouldn't I take up the life of faith? And so I want to encourage you, take up the life of faith. If God's converted your heart and mind, that's great. Let's let's let him convert your purse, your wallet. And so here's the first step I'd encourage in taking up the life of faith. And it's this, give in a way that requires faith. If you're not practicing the tithe, start today. That might include rearranging your life. Go for it. Enter the life of faith. If you're already practicing the 10%, expand your generosity into the Old Testament vision to a number that feels like a life of faith. And I want to be clear, it's not because we want something from you as a church, and I mean that. If you think this is just a fundraising strategy for our gather initiative, I want to invite you, give somewhere else. I want you to enter into the life of generosity, not just give to gather. And I believe God will provide for our church and for the vision of our gather initiative. I want to do this together, but if you have too much baggage here, you're not ready to give to the church, that's okay. I just want you to enter into the life Jesus talks about in Matthew 6. The vision of the Old Testament of a generous life. God will provide for his church because we're not living out of our resources. We have access to his. The last week I, I stood out in the lobby and someone told me about an act of generosity in their life. I provided a significant need to a special needs family. And he said he wrote the check and did not know where he was going to get the money. And then God provided it. And we're out there in the lobby and we're tearing up over an act of generosity years ago. Because it was a powerful moment in his life. And it will be for you too when you enter into the life of faith. Or maybe you're still sitting there thinking, well, this is too much. 10%, I'm not ready. I understand. So my last shot is I'm going to give you a story and a scripture and then I'll take my seat. First, the story. I want to tell you the moment uh, God like, broke through and the conversion of my wallet began. We got home from a, a very long road trip with my family, and we started pulling up to our house. And I noticed there was a red car in our driveway. And I was immediately annoyed because I thought my neighbor had parked in my driveway, knowing I was gone. So we grabbed an extra parking spot. And now I had a van full of stuff to unload into my house, and I wasn't going to be able to park in my driveway. When I got closer, I realized that's not my neighbor's car. As someone in my church knew that our family needed a, a new wheelchair accessible van and told me they were going to buy us one. I was a little skeptical, mostly because this person was a little wild, on, like on, in a good way, but still like, do you mean that? But also, because they weren't a wealthy family. This would have meant an enormous act of generosity and constraining of their lifestyle to do this for us. They were giving an outrageously large percentage of their income to serve my family. And they did. And I stood there looking at that van thinking, I want that kind of life to be that kind of giver. God, show me how. And I bet someone's done that for you. Do you remember that moment? Don't you want to be that kind of person? And maybe you're sitting there, you know, Tim, no one's ever been that generous to me. Not true. The Apostle Paul once wrote a letter to a wealthy church in the city of Corinth. And it's pretty clear their giving had been underwhelming, weak in comparison to the poor churches Paul had served. So he writes a letter. But he doesn't shame them. He reminds them of the generosity of God and he writes these words For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. So we are rich. Because the Son of God left the throne of heaven, left the honor of the Son of God, left the wealth of the kingdom to come and be spat on, humiliated, mocked, and crucified. And he did all of that so that you could have the wealth of heaven poured out onto you. The mercy of God, the kindness of God, the grace of God. Which is why if you're sitting there, well, the Old Testament may have said that, but that's not repeated in the New Testament. My response to you is, If you see Jesus on the cross for you and you think the expectations of generosity are now less than what the Old Testament was, I can't help you. The Son of God poured himself out for you, and and it's like, let's lower the bar now. I don't don't get that. I don't. Because God is a radically generous God who freely gave of his Son to sinners. And the only way we will enter into a life of that type of generosity is when we live daily into the generosity God has given to us. His own Son. The riches of heaven poured out. That is the good life. That is the free life. And I want to journey into that kind of life. And I hope you do too.
0: Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.